Welcome to Sacred CEO, the podcast where visionary women learn to be bold with their voice and become the sacred six and seven figure CEOs of their businesses and lives. I'm your host, Dr. Claudia, former Ivy League trained professor turned business coach for women with a big message and a big story to share and whose ideas don't fit neatly into a box and maybe even challenge the status quo. My mission is to teach women how to find and unleash their voice, share it unapologetically and make money while building real wealth. You'll hear solo episodes and interviews on topics such as business, spirituality and relationships. We'll talk about all the things that women are not supposed to talk about, such as unapologetic self-expression, confidence and magnetism, money, wealth and power, so that we can explore what it truly means to be a woman with a voice today. Let's dive in because it's time to get unleashed. Loves, I'm so excited for my guest today, the legendary Mike Ganino. Mike is the creator of the Mic Drop Method, a public speaking, storytelling, and performance coaching methodology. He's a storytelling and communication expert who hosts the Mic Drop Moment podcast. He's been named a top 10 public speaking coach by Yahoo Finance and California's best speaking and communication coach by Corporate Vision Magazine. He's an author, former executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, and has been named a top 30 speaker by Global Guru. He's, he's a trained actor and coach from the world-famous Second City, Improv Olympics, and Upright Citizens Brigade. In addition to his track record as an executive in the hotel, restaurant, retail, and tech industries, Mike's worked with organizations like Disney, American Century Investments, Caesars Entertainment, and UCLA. He likes to be known not just as a public speaking coach, but rather as a public speaking director who blends his experience in the entertainment industry and in speaking to help you craft powerful talks that cut through the noise to make you stand out as the next expert to look out for. I'm so excited for you to listen to this interview. So here's Mike Ganino. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Sacred CEO podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get to chat finally. Yeah, I'm so happy that we get to have this this combo and see what comes up. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Oh, goodness. The existential question, right, that I think everyone (laughs) faces during these things. You know, I think the, the best way to kind of understand it in my all through my early 20s, I worked in the restaurant industry uh, in corporate training and that kind of world, teaching people how to make sandwiches and eventually became a sommelier and a wine trainer. And at the same time, I was an actor. So a lot of people, that's the story when you're an actor, right? You also work in restaurants to make some money, get some health insurance if you live here in the US and can't get it otherwise. And so I was doing both of those. And when I became a sommelier, I would go to all of these fancy wine trainings, right? I remember even going to like, you know, the wines of Italy or Campania or something like that. And you would sit through these trainings, even as a professional, and they were so boring, so boring, because people just had the worst slide decks with so much information on them, ugly fonts, no stories. And it was really hard to follow along. And I started thinking, well, every night, in the theater. Every night when we're putting on a show, we're able to capture people's attention and hold it for two hours or three hours. Why don't we start thinking about training in that way? 
and that we're putting on a show, that we're trying to get people's attention and keep it so they can learn the important things they need to learn, whether that's how to make a sandwich or how to, you know, how to talk about wine in a restaurant setting or what kind of soil grows in, you know, Rioja, Spain. And so I started incorporating that and, and it was going so well. I was winning awards for training and eventually became a CEO or a COO, a chief operating officer and a partner at a concept that I helped start. We grew that, sold that to a private equity firm and I took the cash and I ran away. I was like, what's next for me? And so I started teaching and speaking myself. I was speaking about how to build a great brand, how to be a great leader in the hospitality space. And slowly, I had clients that would come back and the first one was a hotel client and they said, hey, we want you to come back and work with us again. And I was like, sure, great. Yeah, I could come and, you know, want me to talk about something new, want me to do the same thing. And they're like, no, we don't want you to talk. And I thought, okay, well, you're not the first people who have told me that before. You don't want me to talk. Please stop talking. <laughs> but they said they wanted me to train their executive team how to speak better. Because when I came to their event, their conference, everyone was listening. Everyone was leaning in and paying attention. But their exec team was boring everybody. And, and, you know, sure, what I was doing there was helpful and made them feel good, but they needed to know the stuff that the marketing person was talking about and the operations people, they needed that to do their jobs and it was just so boring. So I started teaching them uh, and working with them on their presentations and I thought, oh, this is the combination. You know, sometimes you have that like little strike, that little aha moment that you didn't plan. And so I thought, oh, this is what I was supposed to do. All of my years of acting and writing and directing other people on stage and my background in the business world, this is the combination. And so that's what I started doing was working with people on speaking, on presentation, on how they showed up on stages in different places. And, uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since is really kind of, I look at myself more like a director than a public speaking coach. Yeah. Because as a coach, it's like, let me help you figure out what you wanna do. And what I look at is my job is to help somebody and say, how do we help you be the be the version of you you want to be on stage from an audience's perspective, the same way a theater director or a film director would do. And so today I work with, you know, people in the executive space, uh, companies like Disney and Adobe, Caesars Entertainment. But I also work with a ton of professional public speakers who just want to get that next level, who want to go that next little tier. Um, and I work with them as a director. So good. And I love that you call yourself director instead of coach, because like even the title, like public speaking coach, I mean, it's fine, but it's so boring, you know, yeah, like, the type of coach, like executive coach or whatever. It's just like, oh, my God, can we put our own spin on it? Yeah. And like, can, can we embrace a bigger vision in the way we describe what we do and in the way we actually do it? So I love that. And I think like a lot of people like you know, like, I don't really work with people who are like, I'm a little bit nervous. Like, can you help with stage yeah. fright? That's not really my client. There's a lot of public speaking coaches for that. Um, and I don't really work with people who are like, can you look at my script? I really work with people who are getting invited. They're on big stages. They're doing it professionally, getting paid really well. Or they're, you know, a leader of a company going out and speaking on behalf of their company who the stakes are really high. It's not that they're a little bit nervous. It's that I need to nail this because someone's giving me a lot of money to be there or because I could ruin my company's reputation. And so that I think is a little bit of the difference too. Like I'll get messages all the time for the website of like, oh, I, I need help with stage fright. Um, or I say, um, too much. And I think here, here's a list of other great people who can help you. Yeah. I'm really on that other side of taking people who already have a thing going on and saying, okay, like you said, from the director perspective, how do we just fine tune this 
change yeah. things, filter it. That's uh, so it's fun. It's been fun to play in that space. So cool. And I don't know if it's easy to describe it, but in your eyes and from your experience, what is the next level that they need? Often the often the thing is that it's very rare to get honest feedback even. So when you are public speaking, even when I go inside of companies, when I work inside of Disney or Adobe, um, the challenge is that even there, it's uncomfortable to give someone feedback on their public speaking because some of it is about presence, some of it is how they show up, and some of it is just people are watching you from an untrained eye. So they know that it didn't work, but they don't know why. You know, it's like sometimes when you watch a movie or you listen to a song, you're like, I don't like it. It's like, I don't know why I just didn't I didn't believe the character. Or I didn't I don't know, something didn't work. And so often when we're sitting in the audience or we're someone's manager watching them as a public speaker, we see it and we think, oh, I, I don't know, I didn't like it or I don't know what to do. Or we just give them the feedback of being nice. So like, that was so good because it's scary to get on stage. And so people project that on you when you're on stage and they say, wow you did it and I couldn't so good for you. And it's like, great, that's nice. But what I need is very specific, actionable feedback. And so for most of the people I work with, it's really those little things of helping them see where are the places where they're giving away their power on stage, maybe through the way they're moving. They're just not aware of it. Uh, maybe through things they're doing with their voice. Maybe it's content and it's uh, too much information, not enough story, too much story, not enough information, telling the story in the wrong way. I make fun all the time about, you know, this whole emergence we've had of like, tell stories, stories are power, powerful stories. And it's like, sure, but we actually need to know how to tell them really well to make them effective. And, and people spend a lot of time and money figuring that out, how to put shows on Broadway, um, how to put shows on the West End in London, how to make movies shine. There's a lot of work that goes into that. So the next level for most people is really understanding themselves on mm -hmm. stage. Yes. And it's hard to get that feedback. Um, and it's hard to get good feedback that is actionable in yeah. that space. Yeah, it's almost like you as a director, they're already powerful, but you come in and you 10x their power. Right? Exactly. That's exactly it. Exponential effect, right? That's why it's like, you know, a title like coach. And I can relate to that because like, yeah, sure, we, you can call me a business coach or whatever, right? But I'm actually so much more. I'm a teacher, I'm a mentor, I'm an author, and I'm a student, I'm a scholar. So like, there's so much more in that vision of 10xing someone's power. Mm -hmm. That's it's not just teaching a craft. It's like, no, you're already powerful. How do we take it to an extraordinary level? Yeah. And also giving them that very specific thing yeah. to focus on. It's like, listen, like, stop worrying about this because it's going to take you like five years to get good at that. But this one thing over here, if you could stop doing it, it will work really, really well. Like, that's what you could stop doing and you'll be in a much better place and then come back and see me in five years and we'll fix the other thing. Yeah, it's almost like this mix of like vision, which is super cool. Like I get super activated by that and then like incredible specificity. It's like mm. you need both to excel. Yeah, like yeah. And, oh, go ahead. And a, and a specific eye 
for what works from an audience's perspective. A lot of people like with public speaking coaching, a lot of people who do that work are focused on the speaker. Like, what are you, what are you yeah. feeling and what are you doing? I'm focused on, if I'm sitting in the audience, do I believe you? Am I interested? Am I engaged? Am I bored? Is there too much going on? What's getting my attention the same way that a director in a movie would? They would be looking through that lens and saying, okay, what angle, what lighting, what is the audience focused on? And I think that that's one of the big pieces of you. You said that so beautifully about vision and incredible specificity. That is what a director does is really look at it and say, what could be happening here? Vision. And I need to help you with incredible specificity to make the small changes that will help you deliver that. It's so beautiful how you said that. Yeah, it's so good to have that combination. So what do you think from the audience's perspective are some of the key things that you really pay attention to and that the audience really pays attention to? Yeah, and so here's that tricky thing with the audience. A lot of times they don't even know that they're paying attention to it. They don't know what they're seeing. They just know I'm bored, but they're like, I don't know what to do. Like dance, like what should you do to not be boring, but I'm not engaged or I don't believe you. So they don't necessarily see it that way. They just feel how they feel about it, right? And so, the big thing that I, the two big things that I look for are, is there clarity here and is there enough contrast? So when we look at clarity, we're looking through, do I understand what you're saying or am I getting lost? Are you giving me, this is where a lot of people get lost with storytelling. They'll be like, I had to tell a story. And then they tell a story in a way that gets the audience thinking too much. And now I'm not listening to you. And now you've been talking and I'm like, wait, I'm still thinking about the thing from three minutes ago. And now I don't know what she just said. And now I'm lost. So I'm going to tune out. I'm not going to catch up because it takes a lot of um, it takes a lot of cognitive. It takes a lot of brain power to watch someone for an hour on stage or an hour on a screen. If you're doing a virtual, it takes a lot to watch them and not let your attention get distracted. And so the job of the person on that stage is to do everything they can to keep it. And that happens through clarity and, and contrast. So, again, clarity is the message clarity in the way you're delivering it, meaning if you're talking about something emotional, does it sound like that? Is the way that you're moving providing clarity about what you're saying and how I should feel? Or am I getting confused because you're pacing a little bit and wandering around on stage? So there's no clarity there. And then contrast is, are you doing this in a way that keeps my attention? Is there a good mix of data and story? Are the stories a good mix of not just, uh, I was working with someone recently who had a very hard, tragic story that she's telling and it wasn't working over and over and she thought maybe the world just doesn't want to hear this sad story so i watched a video that's one of the things that people can do is send me a video that's one of my products they send me a video i'll watch it and i record like a reaction video to it and just give them notes and they can go run and do what they want with it and so her issue wasn't that nobody wanted to hear the sad story it's that for 45 minutes she held them in sadness without any uh, emotional break. So we needed moments of lightness, moments of hope, moment. We need contrast yeah. to keep our attention. Otherwise we say, this is getting too much. I'm going to tune out. I'm going to disassociate in a way. And so contrast can happen through the content. It can happen vocally. It can happen in the way we move. It can happen in how close you are to the audience, how far you are from the audience. And so when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the audience's view of, do they have clarity and contrast? And then if they don't, which of those levers might be the most impactful one for this person on stage to use? I love the combination of things in terms of like, yeah, that clarity where it's like the essential, right? We need to be able to communicate the essential 
the essential message in the most straightforward way possible. And at the same time, we need to make the whole thing exciting in the sense of like keeping the audience engaged. And what I love about public speaking is that you can sort of replicate that through marketing and video and even words. But I think like, you know, live public speaking really has so many layers because as you said, you can use the words, you can use the body, you can use the tone, you can use your presence, you can you can use storytelling, you can use emotions. There's so much that yeah. really be used. And, you know, we've all seen those super, I'm sure you've seen, thousands of those super boring speakers right like the executives that you mentioned at the beginning that's like oh my god they're not using all the assets available to them yeah and even people who are using some but they overuse it and so then it gets lost again and it's just an interesting thing of it's so hard to get actual good feedback that's yeah. useful that's actionable um and it's interesting too one of the things you said when you were when you started there that that made me think about this is the context also matters a lot so with public speaking if you're in a in a um in a event space right if you're live there's context to people are in a room together so that is different and this is one of the big things that happened at the beginning of covid when a lot of people started going to virtual keynotes and i started teaching right away on okay we need to teach you how to be on camera because it's a different job and someone watching a virtual keynote is sitting at home or at work at the time home probably home by themselves watching a screen that is a different job than all of us are in a room as a kind of a forced community because we're sitting in the same room so a laugh is social so if they laugh it's a social thing other people laugh even if it's not that funny if there's a moment you get a different response than someone sitting alone. It's different to keep their attention. And I just saw so many people not realize the context is so different, uh, virtual or in-person. And then even in-person, are these colleagues who are getting together for a work meeting? Are these um, folks coming to you know a sacred CEO retreat and they're there to celebrate and rise up to the next level? All of that should impact the person delivering the message in some way, you know, and a lot of times I see people just kind of like, don't think about, wait, how do I put this talk on in this setting? And so that context thing that you're talking about with public speaking is such an interesting thing um, because we're all together and we're in a space that it could be so beautiful is so true and realizing how different it can be depending yeah. on the context. Yeah, and I feel um, my approach to these things is usually like, you know, they're all exciting, you know, like live is super exciting. And then like, we're going to find the good also in video and virtual keynotes and that kind of stuff. I tried to find the positive and everything, but there was so much like negativity around <laughs> virtual instead of live, because I know that a lot of people vibe off of that live energy. So I'm sure you've seen it a lot in your in your work when you had to switch to teaching only virtual because of mm -hmm. and it was one of those hard things a lot of speakers because they realized oh i'm so used to like responding to this yeah. but when you're delivering a virtual message your job is very different because you need to have a relationship with the camera not the audience and so when people would be like oh i'm i need to see the audience i would tell people all the time turn off the zoom view of yeah. the audience cover yeah. it do not look at them because that person could be, you know, they make a face or something and then you're like, oh, they didn't like it. 
It could be a cat walked across the room. Their dog is throwing up. Their kid is screaming. A, a text message came in that said, you know, emergency. Uh, who knows? And then you're changing how you're delivering based on someone's face that you're misreading. So my advice to people, and still, if you're doing virtual things, you're doing summits or keynotes, and you don't actually need to be talking to the audience, like it's not a small group meeting, do not look at them. Look at the camera and have a relationship with the camera the entire time. It's the difference between doing um, stage theater like Broadway and doing film acting. It's a very different job. Very, very different. Yeah. And almost like I like that thing of like, oh, it's just me and the camera. And I'm, my job is to be filled with my own life force and my own energy. Yes. It's such an enlivening enlivening I don't know sometimes I forget English words but like it's exercise to be like this is just for me and I know when I'm full of myself in the best possible way <laughs> the best transmission transmission comes through for my audience do people have resistance to that to being like oh I'm just gonna feel myself <laughs> for the camera and then the audience is gonna receive my medicine yeah, sometimes the, the whole idea of like cover up the Zoom screen so you can't see all of them is really people really push back of like, but I need it. And I was like, well, then yeah. you need to explore why you need that. Like, and if you do need that, then maybe this isn't the right vehicle for you getting on camera and delivering. Maybe you only do in person because it is such a different, different job. And the same thing with uh, podcasts too, of like right now, you, not, not you, um, Claudia, but the people, the person listening, it's a relationship between the three of us. And so I think all the time people go on podcasts sometimes and they talk about, hey, everyone, there isn't everyone. There's one lady in her car by herself listening to us. And like, hey, by the way, if you're in your car listening to us, hi from us, from mm -hmm. LA and from Italy, or they're in the gym or they're walking, there's not an everybody. And the same thing happens a lot on camera, unless you're a movie actor um, or giving a, a virtual keynote to people who are in a room together, you are talking to one person sitting by themselves and you lose, you remind them that they're alone when you say things like, hey, everybody, welcome yeah. all. And it's like, wait, I'm at home watching this by myself or listening to this podcast by myself. Why don't you say, hey there, how are you? And look at the camera and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm good. Thank you so much. It's just a little thing you can do that shows you've thought about what is the audience's experience and what is that transmission that you said, how is that going to be? And I think it allows you to actually, like you're saying, be more full of yourself and pour more of your energy into that one person, yeah. because that's the only thing happening on the other side of this microphone or on the other side of this camera. Yeah. And I think I, I, I didn't know I was going to go there, but I think that's exactly what Taylor Swift does. So beautifully, right? Right. She's like so full of herself in the best possible way. She's, I heard someone say like, she's so in her vortex and it seems like she's really singing to you and talking to you. But it's such a good advice to like speak to one person, which is something that I'm going to make a note of because <laughs> you're going to establish that direct relationship with your audience. And it's a really good thing too, like that one person thing when you go, um, when you're on a show even, I don't, I don't often, unless I'm doing something like I just did where I said, hey, it's, it's Claudia and me and, and this person, but often on the show even, I don't use the host's name a lot. This is another little tip for anyone listening because it reminds the person in the audience that they're not talking to you. 
that you're talking to someone else and they're just listening versus feeling like, ooh, this is a three-way conversation between the three of us, the person listening in their car or at the gym or on the walk with their dog and you and I, the host. And so when we go on TV shows and get interviewed or we go on a, a podcast and we keep addressing because people will say you should say the person's name a lot like you know mike when i was five you know mike and you shouldn't do that because then the person listening feels like oh this i'm just i can tune out because i'm not required here versus yeah. feeling like i'm actually talking to you and you're just you know uh, it, it's just such a better way to do that and it is a thing that i think taylor swift does so well i think beyonce's doing that so well i think if you even go back further artists from a long history of time have done such a good job of taking and i'm going to borrow one of your terms from earlier incredible specificity and using that to have other people say this is what it was like and other people can say oh it was kind of like that for me it was a little bit different but i get it and even though we may not be in those same situations as those artists and this is a great storytelling tip if you're listening and you're thinking i want to use more stories in my work it is the specificity of the story that actually makes it universal, not the like, well, I don't want to say too much specifics because then the audience might tune out. The opposite is true. When you use your specifics, they say, okay, I kind of had a little bit like that. It's a little different, but it was like that. Yeah, I'm with you. Versus if you're too generic, what happens to them is they say, huh, let me think. I don't know. Now they're thinking and they're not listening to you anymore. So specificity is the key. And you nailed it with Taylor does that so well in her songwriting. Beyonce does that. We see these artists who are at the top of their game just nailing that. Yeah. And if I can think, I mean, I'm not a Taylor Swift expert, but I am a fan. But if I think about her songs, they're so specific. The language that she uses is so specific. And yeah, it's so universal at the same time. So I love, you know, this broader perspective of like, you're kind of like containing opposites, the specificity and the universal, because we're elevating this perspective, which is something that I'm all about. It's not just about specificity or just about relating to everyone it's both together and it's something that you explained mm. explained so well yeah yeah that's a great way to think of it yeah what's your take you know this is a popular word it's something that i talk about all the time but i think there's a lot of confusion about it what what's your take on authenticity <laughs> i knew as soon as you started that's what you were gonna ask oh my gosh okay authenticity here's the thing i think it has become a weaponized um, I think it's become a weaponized against a lot of people because we keep being sold that there is one specific way to be authentic. There's one specific authentic version of us. And that's just not true. We are uh, like, like, for example, a true story here is my job right now on this show is to be a good engaging guest to helpfully to hopefully help uh you the person listening to this get a couple tips to think differently right and and i've been invited on the show by our host who says like hey i want to put out a good show can you show up and put on a good show the authentic version of me if if we're thinking the way that a lot of instagram people use it uh would say well actually the authentic version of me is really tired i have a toddler last night we did halloween here in the us so now you know when we're recording this uh, we did Halloween. We were up late. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. But if I got on the show and uh, and I was asked, like, how are you? And I said, oh, gosh, you know what, guys? Like, wow, I'm really, really sleepy today. I'm a little zoned out. I'm whew, rough morning. Had to get the makeup off the kid. And uh, yeah. 
that's that would be authentic but it's not intentional it's not aimed at what i'm trying to do here and so this whole idea of like you have to find your authentic self i think is is weaponized to make people feel like imposters a lot of time mm -hmm. to make people feel like they have to share things they don't want to share versus saying actually all of those versions of you are authentic like the version of me that turns on the camera and turns on the microphone and is here answering questions and talking to people across the world on this show that's authentic and so is the version of me an hour and a half ago that was sleepy walking my my kiddo to school and so is the version later that's going to be coaching someone all of those are authentic and we could be all of them at once yeah and so i think that this quest for authenticity at all costs is really futile versus honesty and what i'm doing right now is being honest i am excited to talk about these ideas i do want people to hear them so my job is then to think like a director and say how do i give my ideas the best shot at being heard by someone on the other side of the world listening to this show on a walk at the gym in their car that's my honest job even though the authentic version of me might want to go take a nap mm -hmm. what do you think about that word yeah i mean it's interesting so i teach a lot about authenticity but like i don't know if you know this i think i mentioned it on the podcast i always like forget what i mentioned and then i'm like i'm sure my audience heard it a million times but i was a professor <laughs> of film media and gender and sexuality which so i'm very familiar with the ideas that like there's not an an essential self you know the self is almost like a social construct in the same way gender is a social construct and so like there's multiple selves you know like you're your real self might be one might want to take a nap and then you're like oh but I also need to show up and, and it, that's not not true right but it's just like different sides of you so I almost but I don't like the distinction of like oh there's a social self and then there's the real self the social self the way we present to other people right so I think a lot of my work is around uh deconstructing the fact that there even needs to be a social self. So if you had shown up for the way my show is, and if you'd shown up and be like, you know, like, if I have to be honest, I don't fucking know who I am right now. I don't fucking know what I do. I'm just tired because we went trick and treating, trick or treating last night, you know, around the neighborhood. That would have been totally fine because that's what I believe in. That's true. And so like, yeah, cool. Let's talk about that. Right. Yeah. So I do think I think we agree in the sense of like you can show up however you know there's multiple facets to yourself and it's also a matter of like training your audience my audience knows that they can show up however they want not in a way that's like victimy or dumpy you know they need to take responsibility for their wounded selves but they can show up in the truth of who they are in that moment. So I think, which is nuance. And sometimes you don't even know who you are in that moment. And it's so funny when I asked you at the beginning, so tell us about yourself, which is something that I ask all the time. And no one knows how to answer that. <laughs> Everyone is like, mm, I don't know. What am I going to say? You know, one day <laughs> I'm a dad. And one, like you said, one day I'm a dad. I'm a, both a dad and like a, a director for high level leaders and public with public speaking so yeah i think it's a it's a nuanced concept and but i have to share also that my personal journey has been and i see this in my day to day life i think sometimes what i do and how i am is edgy for some people because i don't conform to the norms mhm mm 
And like, for instance, I went to the gym yesterday. I have a new personal trainer and I don't want to work out. I'm, I mean, I'm paying him and I don't want to work out. I'm like, I was like, everyone is having a good time and I'm sweating and I'm like <laughs> groggy and, you know, cranky. And I was like, I'm just going to be honest about all of that. And I could tell that his reaction was, oh, what is she saying? <laughs> you know? Right. But then the kind of like he vibed with it. So we had a good time in the end. And I think my personal journey with, with that is just being unapologetic with how I am in the moment and the truth of who I am. And so I think there is an authenticity there, a unified authenticity there that is edgy to share, but it's also like I feel my responsibility to share as well in a an empowered way, in a way that's aligned with life force, not just like, oh, I'm going to share, you know, I'm sad because it's raining. And so like, I'm going to share. Right. As it makes sense. Right. I, have a I have a therapist and friends. For <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and the, the thing there too is like the, the link I think is, uh, it's also to understand like, what is my goal here? Like, what am I trying to do? This is one of the things about actors that is often miss understood is the word actor if you think of the word the word what is the root of it it's act it's not about pretending it's taking actions and so i'm not pretending to be sad i'm trying to do something to you so if, and you know you're a film person um but if we're in a scene together bad acting is me saying i'm sad let me be sad and we see that and we know like oh that doesn't feel real well the reason it doesn't feel real is because they're pretending to be something versus attempting to do something to the other person. So if I was gonna do that same thing and be like, I'm so sad, I would have to think, well, why am I doing that right now? Because we're always as people doing it for a reason. I want you to feel guilty. I want you to, I wanna guilt you. I wanna shame you. I wanna endear you to me. Like that is what actors do. They act, they take actions and do things. And so me being on the show, again, if my job was just to be like, oh, I'm on the show talking about being a dad and all the real things, then cool. That's my job there. But my intention of this show and why I'm here is to talk about how we show up on stages and screens. And so I have to think about what, what do I need to do? What actions do I need to take to help my ideas survive all of the things that the audience is going through in their car, driving, walking, listening, thinking about their day, I have to make sure that I'm doing clarity and contrast so that my ideas have a chance of making it through that that neural web of stuff we all have going on. And uh, and I think that's like the fun thing to think about. And you said this beautiful thing too, that is that is really like intertwined with a lot of what I do of there is no essential self and there is no one social self. This whole like, I have a social mask. You have lots of them all the time. And often we don't even know that we're doing it because, you know, if you ask people and they tell you something about you and you're like, really? Huh. And then you think about it, you're like, well, actually, that's right. And I just didn't think about that myself. And so we show up and we show up on stage and on screens as speakers. And all of our trauma history, all of our relational history, all of our family history, all of our social history, all of our cultural history shows up in the way we show up on stage. And we often have never, ever considered it. And we've never even thought about how is all of that stuff I've been through impacting the way I'm up here sharing my ideas. We don't even know it. And so that's one of the like really 
interesting and rewarding things for me in doing this keynote directing work is sitting from an audience's perspective and saying, I don't even know if this person is aware that they're doing this thing. And I certainly don't know that they're aware of the impact of it. And so now their idea, which is a really great idea, is not surviving my neural web of all the things going on because I don't believe them or because I don't understand them. But they're doing all these things because of trauma, family, cultural, social histories that they're not even aware of because we don't have one essential self and we don't have one social mask. We change it depending on the circumstances. Yeah. And it's almost like, and your focus is like, okay, how can my idea or, you know, my client's idea have, you know, you're saying survive and like another word could be have longevity. Yeah. Stay for the long term. You know, mm -hmm. it's required of me to make that happen. And the way, you know, if, if I were to look at it from my perspective, when you said like, you know, an actor uh, playing a sad part, what I would say, you would think about like, okay, what do I want to achieve in the audience, which is a super powerful way to think about it. And the way I would do it is like, how can I channel life force mm -hmm. and express sadness? Mm -hmm. Not just this act or this performance, which I think it's beautiful. And it's so like, we kind of like uh, eliminate this binary between authenticity and performance where like the performance is authentic if you are you know, thinking genuinely about the audience, if you're thinking genuinely about like, how does that feel in my body to be sad, right? Not hmm. just because I've learned that I need to cry or I need to like, you know, do slump my shoulders or something like that. So I love, this is something that I've thought about before, but I'm glad we're having this conversation about, there's no difference between authenticity and performance. Yeah. Well, and, and to take it like one level further too, we're gonna, we could go give a TEDx talk on this, you <laughs> and me. Um, the idea of like, I'm sad right now, how do I have life force to express that is not super helpful until you get to the place where you say super, it's super helpful to, to know and feel, but in a, in a, in a social setting on a stage setting, the express part is important because we change how we express it based on what we're trying to do or get from the other person. Do I want, I'm sad. And do I want you, I may be sad because of something my husband has done. And so my sadness, I want him to feel guilty. So my sadness is expressed differently because I'm taking an action towards him of, I want him to feel guilty about my sadness because his fault versus my sadness to my daughter. I'm still sad. I'm still feeling that life force, but my expression of it changes because I don't want her to feel guilty. Mm -hmm. Now it may change when I call up my friend on FaceTime, because what I want from her is I want to um, to endear her to me. I want her to uh, care for me. So my expression of my sadness changes again. And so even in that one rooted embodied feeling of sadness, I have a lot of different ways that I can play it, play my actions based on what I'm trying to get. And we are social beings, humans. So all of that stuff is so embedded in who we are. And it's just a really fun thing sometimes to think about, oh, shoot, I'm bringing all of that with me every time I get on stage or turn on a screen. And it's like, yep, we bring that every single time. And if we don't think about it, our ideas are penalized because we haven't considered that. And it's like that, I think, so that people will ask you like, why do you do what you do? And I'm like, I don't know why I do what I do, but there's a root somewhere that I think 
some of the best ideas and smartest people don't get heard, really heard, mm -hmm. because they don't know how to share those ideas in a way that somebody says, I get it and I'm interested. And that is not because of the idea. It's because of the feeling and then the expression of it, you know? You know what it makes it makes me think of academia, where I was an academic uh, for a long time. And uh, what I saw was like people with brilliant ideas that were not heard, part because of the institutional problems of just academia in general, but also because, yeah, they didn't have the tools. You know, it was like reading boring paper. You would go to conferences and people were reading boring papers and they're like, and in a, in, in a highly intellectualized and theoretical way where it's like, if you could just like pare it down, this would be such a cool idea to make accessible to a wider audience. And this is something that I struggle with a lot because I miss all the sophistication of ideas that I had in academia. And then, but there was no life force. There was no soul. It was all also like part of the reason why I left academia is because it was so disembodied. It was like super mm. cool, very cerebral, super cool, highly sophisticated ideas, very inspiring. But then like, how do you bring your whole body to your ideas, even if it's like scholarly efforts? And then sometimes what I see, you know, in the coaching consulting world or, you know, the online world is that I'm missing that sophistication because mm. I have that rich background and like my goal is also to interview people who bring that together and to have more conversations with sophisticated people they don't need to be academics you know that doesn't matter but just people who can understand the nuances of things and talk about things in multi-layered ways yeah and it's that interesting thing of being able to take those ideas that are sophisticated and say how do i take this thing and make it so that people can understand it so it survives that neural pathway of like I'm confused because even if it's a sophisticated idea, the clarity is an audience's perspective of clarity, not the communicators. And so it's why so many, like you say, so many great ideas die in academic journals that seven people read versus, you know, these pop culture psych books where it's like, oh gosh, this idea really spread because the person took the time to say, how do I make this make sense yeah. to a person grabbing this book at the bookstore or at an airport? Yeah, and this is a conversation that I've had inside of me often, especially at the beginning of my journey in like coaching consulting. And then that I have with clients often where it's like, you know, you'll read a self-help pop psychology book and it's like, oh my God, this idea is kind of dumb. It was so simple. Like, but then there's something more there, where it, which is what you're saying, that they really pared it down to its essence. And then what they're able to, you know, like in a lot of those books, you read the same thing over and over again, just like with slightly different mm -hmm. words. But I think what they do is like they they add this emotional component that makes it so that the ideas stay versus a highly sophisticated article that's very inspiring, but then it doesn't stay. Yeah, yeah. It's like, a, I always say this too, when, when, uh, when somebody is telling a joke on stage, a comedian, there's the jokes that we laugh at in the room because we're laughing and it's social. We're all sitting together laughing, it's funny. And then we leave the room and it's over. There are also the jokes where they're so true and so honest and have such clarity and contrast 
that we say, oh my gosh, and then we tell people about it the next day at work. We tell people about it a week later. They'll be like, you never believe this one I heard, versus just the joke we laugh at because in the moment it was social, it was fun, mm -hmm. we gave a giggle, versus the ones we leave and we can't stop talking about it because there was this deep, deep truth to it. And I think those academic uh, ideas that then end up spreading because they're told in a way that's so great and easy sometimes, is because now I don't just understand your idea, it feels true to me because you've wrapped it in a story I can connect to. You've wrapped it in an example that says, oh, that feels like my life, or I know someone like that. Okay, I get it now. And so now it has that truth element, the same way that a, a certain kind of joke does where we say, ah, well, this is funny because that happens to me all the time. I, I love this one. So do you think that truth is that thing that lets things stay for longer? I think the the connection to truth, so not necessarily that the story is true, because you could look at movies and say, well, we remember lots of movies and they're not true. It's that the emotional connection, the thing that the character wanted, that they were willing to go through all the things they went through in the movie to get, that feels true to us. We say, you know what? I'm not ever gonna be, you know, if you take Jaws, I'm not ever gonna be a small town sheriff who's being attacked by a great white um, but I can understand feeling the pressure of having to protect people and then not being believed. I can understand that because it's kind of similar to this thing I had. Now there's my truth, even though the absolute truth of the moment of like small town sheriff with a great white shark attacking everybody, that's not true for me. But the truth of his emotional story is true enough that I could say, oh, yes, I'll be talking about this movie in 40 years. And I think that's what matters there is a truth that we can connect to true enough for me that I can connect to it. Do you think it matters? You know, once you hit that truth that you can connect to, maybe it matters less that like the crafting of the story is perfect. I'm thinking about public speaking or like marketing. Maybe they, it doesn't have to be like so perfect, but if the truth is true and there's that emotional uh, relevance, then it works. A hundred percent. And I think that's the actual job of crafting a story yeah. is not the, what do I need to decorate it with? Yeah. Let me decorate it. It's to say, how do we get to the place? And this is part of like what I do with people is like, I don't care about all the, like, you know, the amuse-bouche and the accoutrements that you're putting on this thing. What I care about is, are you delivering it in a way that the audience doesn't disconnect and they say, oh my gosh, yes, I get it. That's what we care about. And that's why, like, for me, I make fun all the time of like, I don't care how many times you say, um, I don't care what you do yeah. with your hands because when we find the truth, the ums go away and your hands figure out what to do. Yeah. So let's not worry about ums and hands because when we drop you into the truth, all of that goes away anyway and you do what you would naturally do. And we believe you, even if you say, um, and even if you use your hands awkwardly, when it comes from truth, we no longer care. Yeah, exactly. And so many people, you know, in public speaking or marketing or like writing, they focus about like the externals or like what are considered, you know, flaws, like the ums or like they, they're moving their hands too much or saying like or whatever. But the audience, you know, once they're hooked in, they don't care. And once you own it, you know, maybe you say um all the time and who cares? Yeah. And, and often, again, the thing that I see all the time is that it kind of goes away. Yeah. When you get rid of work, when you get rid of the other stuff anyway. Or it gets to a place where it's just natural because we all naturally say, um, I've said, um, on this podcast several times. 
we all naturally move our hands when we're just talking to each other. For us, naturally for us, it will be different. What happens a lot of times is people will go to a public speaking coach. It'll be like, the way you should move your hands when you say this is from the left to the right. And it's like, well, now I'm pretending and now it no longer feels true. Yeah. Now we have a problem versus let's get rid of all that. Let's get you really connected to what you're saying and the actions you're taking on the audience, what you want them to, what you're trying to do to them. And then if you say, um, nobody cares because it feels authentic then. It feels real because you're not pretending to do something and then us saying, well, that didn't look right. And it's like, right, because I was pretending because my speaking coach told me to. Mm -hmm. I've never said this out loud, but I feel like I can say it now. I think like sometimes, I mean, there's TED Talks, many TED Talks that are amazing, mind blowing. And then there are so many that are not good. (laughs) (laughs) Is it allowed to say that? I think so. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, because they do exactly what you're saying. You know, they they learn the rules and they crafted a speech that's supposed to work for the rules. And then there's no soul. And yeah, it's not them. And there's nothing unique. Maybe the idea is cool, but there's nothing unique and compelling about mm-hmm. the way it's presented or the way it's delivered. So it falls flat. There's a TED talk. One of my favorite TED talks is an Italian TED talk where they break down the national anthem. And it's this Mm. mix of the anthem, so you hear it playing with the orchestra, and then the guy explaining what the music is doing to the song, how the music and the lyrics Mm. go together. And it's done so beautiful, and you're like, oh, I'm in. I don't even care about the national anthem, but like, I'm in now. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. The Again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier of, the delivery yeah. of the thing determines whether we pay attention or not. Yeah. It really does. And so uh, we sometimes see people spend so much time just getting their idea, getting their idea. What do I want to do? And it's like, but we need to make sure that it can survive all of your emotional trauma, family, social, cultural history. And the audience's neural web of, I need to just focus on things that are interesting, intriguing, and can help me survive. Those two things have to work through each other so that the thing can land. And this is what this person did for this uh, this talk that you're talking about then. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, you could tell that he loved what he was talking about. And he was an expert at that. And then it was totally entertaining for, for the yeah. audience. Right. To me, that is such an act of generosity. And I tell my clients that all the time, you know, like you have to be fully self-expressed yourself because we need that as a baseline, as you're saying. And then it's so loving to the audience to really do it for them. Yeah. And it is honestly in service of whatever idea you're there to share, because again, it has no chance of surviving without that great self-expression from you. And great self-expression is intentional and aimed. We're expressing ourselves not for ourselves, really. We're expressing ourselves for other people to get us, which then serves us. But self-expression, if it was for you, you would just sit by yourself. It's the same thing I say about our actual voice, the actual sound of our voice. It is not for us because we can think ideas in our head. We can talk to ourselves in our head without ever moving our lips. Our voice, our physical sound of our voice is for other people. 
So let's figure out how we can use that thing to get what we need done in the world or which might be connect, which might be save, which might be laughed, which might be held, which might be all of those things. But it, all of that self-expression is for someone else because we can feel everything we need to feel and think everything we need to think by ourselves in a room without making sound. So if we're going to do all those things, why is it? It's so that we can have other people drawn towards us or away from us. Yeah, so that we can move people, you know, whatever mm -hmm. that means for us, you know, move to to feel, to do, to act, to think. And it's so beautiful. So if you were to be completely honest, which I know you are, what are some of the most exciting parts of your work? I really love, I really love when somebody is very committed to doing the work. That is very exciting for me. Um, <clears throat> when somebody is, because what I'm asking them to do, the self-expression we were talking about, is make choices and expand what choices are available to them. Because we don't realize that. Sometimes we get on stage or a screen and it's like, everything you're doing is a choice. And so when I watch someone on stage, a uh, public speaker or an actor, I think, ooh, that, was a, that person made a really good choice right there. She made a great choice because everything you're doing is a choice. Sometimes we just are an autopilot, but we're still choosing those things. And so the job of someone, if they wanna be the most effective communicator that they can, is to say, how do I keep, how do I become aware of the choices I'm making, which is not easy? How do I then expand the available options to me so that in the moment I know, oh, this is the choice I need to make here. It's like what we were talking about earlier with, are you in a huge arena with 10,000 people where most of them are gonna be watching you on the screens? You need to perform a little differently than if you are in a room of 20 people, than if you're on a keynote. You need to make different choices for the same words and ideas. And so for me, what's really, when I get really excited is when someone starts to get really into that for themselves, when they're really not just saying, here, tell me what to do. Yeah. Um, but when they're saying, oh, okay, wait a second, you know, here I could do, I love being a collaborative partner with someone. And so a lot of times, even when I'm working with someone, I won't say, I will never say, here you should be more, like when you tell this part of the story, you should be more sad because yeah. now they're gonna be a bad actor, right? Like, let me get sad. I'll say, huh, if you were trying to convince someone of this, what would that sound like? Now they say, huh, what do I sound like when I'm trying to convince versus let me be sad. And so I give them the action to take and then see what comes naturally for them. That helps them expand choices. So the most exciting thing for me is that when I see people get really into like, huh, you know what I could do here, or I could do this, let me play with it and see which one works best. And this is the higher level that we were talking about. I see this in coaching so much where it's like, you know, my job is not to tell other people what to do, you know, <laughs> you know, sure. It might be exciting for my ego, but no, that's not serving them best. What's exciting is like expanding the field of possibilities for them, you know, opening up doors for them. And then they walk through the door. They start to realize that actually there are, infinite possibilities for them and start to develop the inner muscle exactly as mm. you're speaking to make different choices 
based on their own will, life force, self-expression, not because you told them to be sad or like to show <laughs> or whatever, right? It's really tapping. And maybe what came up for me also as you were speaking is maybe the difference between self-expression and authenticity, where authenticity, authenticity maybe is like a, a created construct versus like self-expression. It can be true at any moment. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is. Yeah. And that self-expression, again, is always based on what am I trying to yeah. do here? Because even art, if I'm painting something, I'm trying to elicit something from someone watching it or looking yeah. at it. Even though I'm expressing myself, I'm making choices. Yeah. What color, what font, what size stroke to do. Um, and so it's such an interesting thing to say. I don't know that we can ever divorce ourselves from the social aspect of yeah. being a human or why we would want to, you know? Yeah. So there's always this relational aspect to self-expression. Sure, maybe I think so. you need to develop it for yourself, right? Before you can be relational with it. But then once you find it, then it's so fun to play with other humans in any sort of way. Yeah. And it's probably like a way to like contextualize it too, is it's like if you have the same feeling or idea that you want to share, but you change how you express it, to different people based on, I'm scared that she's gonna be mad at me and judge me for this. So I need to change the way I'm sharing this thing. Then if I'm doing it with my bestie over wine, I can still self-express, but I have to make choices about how to do it based on the relational situation going on with the person in front of me, even though it's the same idea. And even though in both cases, I'm expressing myself. Yeah, and once you have that connection with yourself, you're not compromised, let's say like, you know, you need to express it in a certain way to a certain person, but you need to be connected to yourself so that you're not, you know, silencing your voice or compromising your expression or you're just adapting it to the situation, which is very different from like codependence or trying to right. not speak your truth, right? It's like, no, have that self-expression basis, very solid. And then take into consideration, which is so good also for marketing, right? Take into consideration the goals you want to achieve and the audience and then the world is your oyster boom that is the <laughs> mic drop moment right there <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay we could talk about all of this for so much longer but you know we're at the hour almost so where can my audience find you once you can figure out how to spell my last name ganino you can find me everywhere it's g-a-n-i-n-o uh, mike ganino i'm mike ganino on all the places on instagram i love instagram on TikTok, on all the places and my website is mikeganino.com and you can find all kind of cool things there about uh, storytelling and public speaking and all the resources and goodies you need are are over there at mikeganino.com so good so ganino is italian yeah uh calabrian Okay, from the south. I'm from the north, but yeah. So good. So all the links and all the, you know, your Instagram account and everything, everything will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Mike. This was so fun. This was so, I had so much fun expressing myself with you and sharing time here and with you also driving around in your car or walking <laughs> in the gym. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me a little bit today and thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Sacred CEO podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. And please share it with all the women in your circle who can benefit from it. 
We're building a movement of powerhouse, heart-led, visionary sisters who are choosing to be bold with their voice and build six and seven figure transformational businesses based on their authentic voice that create wealth and a legacy for generations to come. And don't forget to subscribe to get access to next week's episode. I'll see you there.